You're listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. My name is Andreas Steno, and I uh, want to welcome you uh, to the Macro Trading Floor. And uh, this week, I have a um, very special co-host with me, namely Jack Farley from uh, the Blockworks family. It's great to see you, Jack. Andreas, great to see you. Alf is in New York City uh, having vacation, uh, walking down the street. People are coming up to him, offering him money, saying, Alf, can you please manage my money? Uh, you know, I love you. So Alf is just sort of like living his best New York life. So I'm, that, I'm, uh, that's why I'm filling in for him today. <laughs> the rock star Alfonso Piccacciello, apparently. Uh, but it's good to see you as well, Jack. Uh, I know you uh, attended the same conference as Alfonso in uh, New York earlier this week, the Digital Asset Summit. So please tell us about that experience and the mood of the conference. It was a glimpse into what's going on in the crypto industry where prices have uh, fallen something like 60-70% from their all-time highs. The mood was uh, quite optimistic and it seems like folks can um, sort of weather the storm. I actually was lucky enough to be able to host the first panel of the first day to really kick off the conference uh, with Daniel DiMartino Booth, Urian Timmer, Mike Green, and uh, the boy himself, our, our friend Alfonso Pecatiello. And I think it's actually really speaks to like how forward thinking Blockworks is in terms of the connection between crypto and macro. Like a lot of people talk about how macro is driving crypto, but you know I think at a lot of crypto conferences, it's they don't really recognize. Uh, you know, there's not as much of a recognition of how much macro is driving crypto prices. And I mean, you really you know. You don't even have to run a correlation of like the Nasdaq between and Bitcoin, which is like 0.8 positive. You really can just see it empirically where, you know, after the merge, Ethereum was, uh, you know, essentially flat, but then the S&P 500 went down maybe one and a half percent intraday and Ethereum absolutely tanked. Um, this was a, a few days ago, but on uh, Tuesday, the CPI number came out at uh, 8.30 in the morning. It was expected to be 8.0 percent. And... Not only was that the the actual uh, median estimate, but I think the whisper number was was eight point zero percent, or maybe even lower. Like smart people I talked to were like, "It's it's going to be lower. It's going to be lower." So I think this eight point when it came out as eight point three percent, that really did shock people. Not only was it higher than the median estimate, but it was much higher than sort of the, the people in the business were expecting. Um, and S and P five hundred futures tanked. Uh, and crypto tanked as well. Uh, so the conference that we had was at 9.15 in the morning, 45 minutes after the CPI release. So it was uh, quite a dramatic th thing. And yeah, I Fed fund futures got repriced from maybe you know 3.95% to 4.2%, ultimately up to like 4.4%. I'm talking about the terminal rate, like how far the market thinks that the, the Fed will get in its its absolute, uh, you know, the, the maximum rate. So yeah, the sort of Zoltan Posar, six percent. We're kind of we're kind of moving there, you know. And the, uh, the the folks who have been sort of betting on the the Fed pivot that we're going to recession, like you got to buy as much two year as you can. That bet has a uh, not paid off. So uh, it was a, it was a really interesting conference, and uh, it was kind of a. Uh, everyone was kind of pretty bearish on on my first panel with Daniel DiMartino Booth and, and everyone um, saying, you know, the Fed is going to hike, all these things. Um, the, the second one I hosted was with Brent Johnson, Teddy Valley, and Adam uh, uh, Back, who is a pioneer Bitcoin person, like one of the first person first people involved in Bitcoin all the way back in 2009. He was quoted in the Bitcoin white paper. So 
he represented the sort of pro Bitcoin and uh, Brent Johnson represented the sort of pro dollar. So it was like Bitcoin versus the Ooh. dollar. Uh, so that was the second panel I hosted. But yeah, it was a it was a fantastic event. Um, sorry, you couldn't make it, but you're going to I know you're going to be going to the one in London uh, next month. Yeah, definitely. So uh, see you guys in, in London for the European version of the Digital Asset Summit later in uh, October. But Jack, I, I wanted to speak to your point about inflation because hosting a, a panel debate right after this shocking inflation report earlier this week must have been quite the experience. Um, I think quite a few people in the business started leaning short on inflation after the inflation report last month. Um, it felt as if the trend was sort of pointing lower um, as a consequence of energy starting to um, sort of drive inflation lower via the release of the strategic pet petroleum reserves and um, and other demand-driven um, factors leading energy prices down. But this was quite a game changer um, since we had a massive increase month on month in the shelter cost component which is a very sticky component in the consumer basket. Um, I think it makes up 33% or thereabout of the entire consumer basket, uh, if you look at the uh, entire shelter cost category. Uh, and therefore, this is something that will stay around in the inflation index for quite a while. Um, and if we see a ne negative price development in the housing market today, given the methodology used to calculate the shelter costs, it will likely take, say, in between nine and 15 months for it to really materialize in a lower inflation reading. Uh, so I think it's fuel to the fire for those expecting the Fed to hike interest rates to a much larger extent than what we've already seen. And pretty obviously negative news for the equity market overall. But as you well, very well know, Jack, we always need to be forward looking. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, this was a big blow to the... Um, uh, crowd leaning short on inflation, but I'm actually still kind of tempted to lean short after this print, um, given that um, we have such an elevated uh, print for, for shelter costs. And if I look at my forward-looking models based on um, house pricing history, basically, then I think we're fairly close to the peak in that category as well. And we start, we're starting to see the signs of goods disinflation. So I'm not overly convinced that we will get new all-time highs in inflation this time around, but uh, we could certainly get that down the road given all of the stuff that's ongoing in energy space. So let's debate energy. <laughs> yeah, hey, so much of it hinges on energy. I think that's why a lot of people were leaning short on inflation, if you could say it, that that inflation would disappoint to the downside because energy prices, oil, natural gas have continued to fall, if not moderate. I know our, our guest who's coming up today has a bullish view on oil and, and natural gas, which I'm, I'm interested to hear. Andreas, what do you make of the energy situation in Europe? People can put up charts that look very dramatic of forward energy, you know, with the one year forward uh, electricity, electricity prices in France, and it's like a thousand euros a megawatt hour. And, you know, that's Ooh. what, I don't know, 50 times or 20 times higher than it, than it normally is, but <laughs> than it should be. Uh, but are people actually paying that? What do you make of the government efforts to sort of take that pain and, and eat that eat that loss uh, as a government itself instead of uh, you know forcing it on its citizens so if if we look at the spot price of electricity um, it's already up in between 10 and 15 times uh, relative to usual levels seen in in 2019 2020 and 2021 um, so we're starting to see these bills being sent out to corporates to households uh, and if you look at the household level, 
the average increase is probably in between three to four times the the usual bill by now uh, across the European continent. So we haven't seen the actual bill yet in households. I want to emphasize that. Um, we're talking about the upcoming perfect storm in terms of electricity bills and uh, heating bills, but I can assure you that we haven't seen the actual bills yet because there's a time lag mm -hmm. between spot prices and uh, and the ultimate bill for households, for example. There is a clear time lag between when um, the energy is being purchased by the utility company and uh, the time where they actually send the bill to households. So. It should be a really interesting fourth quarter in terms of inflation in Europe. I wouldn't rule out that we get to uh, at least 10% in each and every single country in Europe, uh, maybe even close to 15% unless things start to calm down very, uh, very soon. Uh, but I actually think that there are early signs of some sort of dissipating trend, um, I'd say, in, in electricity prices. The reason being that Politicians have very clearly intervened against the liquidity risk premium that we saw in, in the electricity price as a consequence of huge counterparty risks arising. Explain what you mean by uh, that when you say liquidity risk premium in energy. I sort of know what it means yeah. in banking and finance, but what does it mean as opposed to in energy? Well, um, when you're stuck in a situation where um, a lot of counterparts hold credit risk against other counterparts in derivative trades, in energy, um, you get to the point where there's a liquidity risk embedded in these derivative contracts. For example, if you sell electricity forward um, and you know that there is a large liquidity slash credit risk on your counterpart in that trade, uh, you're obviously going to, to set the price higher. Um, and that was essentially what happened a few weeks ago in, in European electricity and natural gas markets uh, to an extent where governments simply had to step in. Uh, and they've at least managed to partly solve this situation via guaranteeing liquidity to the most important counterparts in, in these markets um, via bailouts and, um, and guaranteed loans. Uh, so I think we're slowly but surely moving back towards what I call the fundamental level of, of, uh, of the price of electricity and natural gas. Uh, those levels are still out of league with anything that we've seen historically, uh, but they are not as bad as a couple of weeks ago. I think that's fair to say. Uh, so if you ask me, I think we've seen the peak for now. Um, whether we've seen the peak in, in this cycle depends a lot on what happens on the supply side um, and uh, especially what happens uh, in relation to, to Russian energy by the end of the day. Mm. I've got a lot of questions, Andreas, but should we uh, get to our guests first? Yeah, let's do that. It is now our great pleasure to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor, uh, a guy that I've been following on Twitter and elsewhere for quite a while. So it's a pleasure to have him on the show. Andrew Simon, the president of MacroHive, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Excited to be here. Andrew, um, I've seen you being very active in the discussion on energy recently, um, basically as a consequence of the crisis ongoing in, in Europe. So let's start uh, with that backdrop. What's your take on the uh, supply side in, uh, in energy space right now? Um, sure. And, and yeah, so, so thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, I'm trying to get a bit more active on, on Twitter. Nothing like kind of you and, and Mac Ralph. <laughs> 
um, and probably a lot of other people too, which I have to say, I really enjoy the the commentary and also kind of, you know, people are, they're being transparent with their views and kind of putting it out there and, and, you know, and, and probably Jack, you as well, that, you know, in our business, you know, not everyone does that. And it's kind of funny that this mediums come up that people kind of have to be transparent. Actually, you don't have to be transparent, but people like you guys are. Um, and I think a lot of people are benefiting from that. Um, so, so my view on, on, um, on energy in general. So I guess we'll start with um, oil, uh, but oil and obviously kind of natural gas as well, kind of chat about both things. Um, you know, so demand has been picking up uh, the last couple of years and is expected to continue to pick up. Um, you know, so that's kind of a given. But this, obviously, with everything going on, there's kind of like some cross currents, uh, obviously, that um, that are driving the price. So obviously, the the Russian invasion into Ukraine is, is obviously driving markets in general. Um, and then the other big issue is the, the lockdowns in China. Um, you know, our expectation is that the, the lockdowns in China probably are, could be damping demand by as much as kind of one and a half million barrels a day. Um, now, I would say around that topic, our view is and has been for a long time that these lockdowns would continue. Uh, China and, and President Xi is not thinking probably like Western leaders about getting the economy going. He is trying to think much longer term and may not always be in the best kind of economic terms. But the fact that he's willing to travel and, and after the, the party Congress, it's, there are some signs that, that the economy could open up. Um, and obviously, there's such issues with, with the property sector. It would be good to get the economy going again. And if that does happen and seems fairly likely, that will increase demand. And that will also increase demand at probably not the world's best time, which is going into the winter. And and obviously everything with questions around um, Russia, uh, well, they pretty much cut off most of gas supplies uh, to Europe, certainly th through Nord Stream 1 and significantly through the other pipelines as well. Um, you know, for, for me, it's, it's hard for me to really understand why there's backwardation in, in kind of the oil and nat gas prices. And I understand partly is, is a symptom of the fact that uh, prices are high. And, and usually when prices go up a lot, there's backwardation in commodities like this. But the other thing is obviously the, the threat that the, there's a significant slowdown coming um, globally, which central bankers are certainly trying to engineer that. And for the first time in a very long time, so odds are we're probably getting more likely than we were six months ago. And we can debate that uh, certainly as well. Um, but because of things of lack, like of other people have probably mentioned, lack of investment. Um, and a lot of this investment takes time uh, to, to bring on, whether it's LNG um, infrastructure or, or ships. Um, and obviously questions around the ESG um, energy uh, transition to renewables, which I think we all, it's a, it's a tricky thing. I, I'm definitely not in that this is crazy. I mean, I definitely support it. I, I sat on the board at one point of, of um, a company that was basically trying to produce hydrogen cheaply. 
or uniquely cheaply, not as cheaply in the end as, as our science really completely bared out. But, you know, we, we all kind of, a lot of us believe in this thing. The problem is, is that intermittency is a real issue. Um, and when you have things like, sounds crazy, you know, like it just wasn't that windy. Um, you know, particularly in Europe, like who was going to forecast that? You know, I, I'm sure people on Twitter probably claim that they they forecast that the whole time, but I think most people probably didn't. So there's all this stuff that it's a confluence of lack of investment. I mean, I have friends at a lot of the big um, energy trading companies like Vital, Mercuria, Gunvor. Um, I mean. Six months ago, I was at my friend's house for, for just a party and stuff, and we were talking about, um, and there was people from there, there was people from investment banking at, at a lot of the big global banks who are involved in the energy trade, and they're just like, we can't finance anything. Mm. Now, these guys are clever. Everyone kind of figures out a little bit of way around it, but it is a real issue when, when you talk to people in the market. Um, so I fundamentally think that that you know, energy supplies are tight and I don't see, you know, a, a switch getting, you know, flipped on. And I think that there's, I don't know if I mentioned this, you know, I, I, I think that this price cap thing that, that I guess is the G7 are, are going to try and impose. Um, it's just like markets in general are, are, are so unpredictable, but I, I feel like, commodities particularly and, and like the unintended consequences of geopolitical actions and things like this, it, it, it's so random. Um, but I, my, my general idea without being a complete energy expert or, or an expert in, in kind of, kind of legal ramifications of the insurance um, or the funding part is, you know, they're going to try and solidify the fact that oil from Russia trades at a huge discount to kind of Brent or WTI. Um, and in many ways, probably give China and India and, and countries that they probably give exceptions to um, an ability to negotiate even lower levels. So I guess the fine um, balance that Western governments are trying to do is, well, we want energy. You know, we need oil to continue to flow. Um, we have the issue with gas, you know, recognize all the stuff about renewables. But so we need the oil flowing from, from Russia and other countries. But we also recognize that this is definitely helping um, Russia's war machine. Um, and obviously the last couple of weeks is I can tell you for me, I have a certainly not firsthand, but some experience. My wife is half Russian, half Ukrainian. Um, by the way, a lot of people have that, you know, have that background. And, yeah. and so, you know, so we have so many people we know that have been horribly impacted by, by the war. Um, you know, we should do everything we can to, to uh, stop Putin's ability to finance the war. So I think that this cap or attempt, attempt at something like this um, feels like it can or attempt to kind of thread that needle. Hmm. Andrew, thank you. I've got I have a lot of questions. Uh, Go for it. <laughs> so what's your view on LNG and to what do liquefied natural gas? And yeah. so, so just, uh, you know, oil is used for many different things, uh, uh, driving, in, industrial production, stuff like that. Natural gas is used uh, primarily for electricity and 
oil can be transported relatively easily around the world. You just ship it, kind of no problem. Uh, natural gas goes through a pipeline, and it's a gas. To go uh, transport over an ocean or something like that, it has to be liquefied, and that is very complex. So, you know, a spread between Brent, like non-U.S. oil, and WTI, American oil, is typically what, like, you know, one, two, three, four, five dollars uh, for natural gas. Like, it's uh, eight to ten times more expensive in Europe now. Uh, it's something like nine dollars. Uh, Henry Hub in America, and if you equ equivalent it something like sixty dollars in in Europe, and it used to be way higher, um, the Dutch natural gas. So, uh, to me, if you had to be more bullish on nat liquefied natural gas or oil, oil is like complex. It has to do with the economy, but with liquefied natural gas, it's like it in America it costs nine dollars, in Europe it costs sixty dollars, and it costs three dollars to produce. Uh, that seems like a pretty bull case to me. So, so what draws you to oil as opposed to natural gas? Um, it's a great question. I would say that I'm bullish on both. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, to, to be honest, I, I kind of was looking into the natural gas. I mean, one of my other, I didn't share, but one of my other kind of ideas was, was looking at buying um, natural gas futures and you're not trying to play some trick on the seasonality saying something like, um, February 24, um, NAC gas prices in, in the U.S., which trades at like a 30% discount, um, which is pretty amazing, 30% uh, discount to Feb this coming winter. And, but I think, you know, LNG there, l listen, Europe is building a lot of these kind of offshore floating um, terminals, and, and that's definitely making an impact. Um, I think, it, Russia, you know, Europe is getting 40% of their gas or more from Russia. Um, and now it's down to like 4%. So, and they're, and they're so far been able to, to handle that. Now, the consequences, as you rightly point out, prices have exploded. Um, by the way, that, that discrepancy between price in the U.S. and prices in, in um in Europe and particularly Asia um, has existed for a long time, um, but not for, you know, not four, five, six, seven, eight times. And I actually, you know, spoke to some friends and, you know, at some of these energy companies, because, you know, you talk to people at banks, they know and stuff, but like people who physically handle the shipping, like these guys freaking know, <laughs> you know, and there, there's no question. Um, I think it's an incredibly interesting trade. And there's only so much so that, that you know, it's one thing to ha have those terminals built in Europe. It's another thing to have those terminals built, let's say Canada too. So the U.S., Canada. Um, there's also, by the way, the potential for Mexico to, to, to significantly increase the um, LNG exports. And they're doing that right now um, and obviously there's going to be some cost in the shipping cost so some of that but it's not four times so i think in the sh it, you know in the next one to two years i think it's super interesting um and i look through um i guess i'll give a plug to somebody at somebody else and i'm going to butcher their names um this uh rosenzweig and goring i don't know if, if you guys have read their research um you know, I mean, 
they're definitely out there, you know, so they're making the, the point that forget about all the stuff about LNG in itself, you know, so a lot of this comes from, um, and we haven't talked about other um, things like the, the natural gas um, deposits that Israel and Egypt have, and they're trying to, you know, to, to significant, and, and there, this is stuff coming on. Um, the ability for Europe to potentially also kind of um, small, but uh, also try and uh, do some fracking and get some natural gas there. But their point is when you look at um, the major producing, so <clears throat> Marcellus as being the, the biggest one in, in the U.S., but Marcellus and Haynesville. So these are more kind of natural gas uh, fracking, but more focused on natural gas and oil as opposed to the Permian. Um which is amazing for oil. They have that gas, but there, some of which I think um, for infrastructure reasons that just in the past has not made sense. So they do flare a lot of it um, as obviously as a byproduct of the, of the oil being produced. But let's say they're focusing on Marcellus and Haynesville. And, and, and the research that they've done, and I have seen some other people talking about this as well, is that the, um, the production levels are really kind of... Um, leveling off. And one of the, the kind of myths, and I don't mention, but I had a, had a, a hedge fund in, in the US for a couple of years. And my partner, um, who was a value investor, but really value investors, by the way, are one of their always core things with two core things, one is banks, one is energy, right? So, uh, so it's always that. And we had tons of energy companies. And, and you know, one of the things that came out of shale, I think, in the last few years, by the way, it's been an incredible, like, in, in our lifetime, this is one of the most kind of unique um, technology advances um, for the for the planet, certainly to keep our lifestyle going. Other people can d debate about the, the carbon emission, I think. But I think right now, this has been an amazing thing, is that the, the wells are depleting much faster. Than, than people thought. So the percentage each year, and then they also the ability to how close you can drill from one well to the other. Um, and then the other thing is because you haven't had like in 11 and 12, where especially, I think it was like, it was banks, there was a lot of private equity funding. Um, you know, you could fund like, okay, projects. So you knew you can get funding. Maybe you didn't want to like drill your best well right away. Right away. And maybe you want to drill, you know, and then sell off the, your best wells, knowing that um, you get a much higher price for that stuff. But because of the lack of investment uh, and lack of funding, a lot of the best wells have been drilled. So if you don't have natural gas production increasing from the U.S. Um, and you have, um, as you said, natural gas is, is one of the, the key components in creating electricity. And because electricity demand is actually going to grow probably much faster than just general oil or energy demand, um, the demand for natural gas, uh, and then the other issues about nuclear and, and, and this getting shut down, less coal, uh, which probably most of us agree with, uh, but nuclear probably not. Um, there's gonna be a real demand for, for natural gas. And I don't understand really why, uh, longer day prices uh, are so low, particularly in the US. And then that spread to uh, to Europe and Asia, Asia as well, is also probably similarly very high, um, probably will narrow. 
Will we get to a point, I think they were talking like two or three years <laughs> to a global nat a natural gas, uh, you know, quoted pricing. From the people that I've spoken to that are in this day to day and physically trading it, probably not. That's probably longer ways away. But like, you know, as you guys know, like the markets don't wait. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of smart financial players out there that that are going to do this. A lot of people will try and lock prices in, uh, you know, longer longer uh, dates outward. And I think prices will go higher. And I think probably the, the curve could even flatten. Uh, well, certainly significantly flattened from the steepness that's there. Great point, Andrew. And um, I also wanted to pick your brain on sort of the political backdrop uh, of this long energy trade, because I think one of the reasons why we've seen a retracement uh, in both the oil price, but also in the natural gas price is political intervention against high prices, right? We've seen a release of the SPR reserves in, in the US uh, in terms of crude oil. Uh, we've seen direct political intervention in the natural gas price in Europe. And one of the first things that happened when uh, Liz Trust took office uh, in UK, where you're based, uh, was that she announced a whole package of uh, interventionist policies uh, against the current price mechanisms in, in energy space. What's your take on the political risk of being long energy right now, given that politicians basically work against the trade? Um, that's a great question. And first, I'll, I'll address the, the SPR release. Yep. Um, my personal view is probably different than, than, than all the kind of people on Twitter or the energy people on Twitter. Like, it's there to deal with crisis. This is a crisis. We have a, you know, a probably the most major war in, 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 in Europe since World War II. You know, we had oil prices go to 125. I don't agree with everything that the current administration does, but my current view is I think they probably did the right thing. Um, so I, I'm sure I, I'll be taken apart for all, <laughs> probably really good reasons that I haven't thought about, but that's my view. I would say the only thing I think is absolutely crazy um, is the fact that they were announcing they would buy oil below $80. <laughs> it's just like, somebody is advising them, clearly not, you know, Ken Griffin or Jamie Dimon or somebody. <laughs> Somewhere that must have gotten through or somebody got left off an email or, or something. I mean, I honestly cannot believe that. Um, Wait, Andrew, sorry. Yes, yeah, so, uh, SPR is Strategic Petroleum Reserve and the U.S. has yeah. been... Um, uh, selling from that to increase the supply of oil on the market. Uh, they started doing that when oil was like 110, 120, and they exactly. announced that they were considering buying it back below 80 now that it's close to 80. I think they later said, right. actually, we're kind of not thinking about it, but they didn't take it off the table directly. Andrew, can you explain? You said that's crazy. Why do you think that's such a bad idea? Well, they've been selling, I'm going to say, somewhere around like a million barrels a day, you know, which is pretty freaking a lot. Um, we know that they would then, if, and I'm sure some of it's political, but obviously, you know, let's not address that. Um, but if they're saying they're going to try and restock that, um, so they could be a massive buyer of a million barrels a day. You know, imagine a country overnight, like we were saying about China, you know, a million barrels a day demand. And you're putting a, you know, a floor in there. So as I'm sure there's plenty of very smart people that we know, um, certainly in the hedge fund industry, who probably would show bids at $81 
knowing that there's a very big buyer um, below 80. I mean, sounds like a good strategy. Uh, or I probably would even, as more of a derivative guy, selling 75 puts in, in oil right now or $70 puts, even with some people saying the world's going to come to an end, you know, giant recession and oil's going to collapse. Well, at least you, it, you have a pretty big buyer down there. Um, so even probably I would think, and by the way, I have an idea that, uh, I think selling puts, um, now say $75 or below in oil, especially with knowing that the administration, um, uh, is talking about doing this, I'm assuming after early November, um, probably makes a lot of sense. And especially as a way to express a, a bullish view. Um, to your, to uh, Andreas, your comments about the Europe, and uh, I'll, I'll give my best view, um, despite the accent, <laughs> even though I've lived here for 15 the last 21 years. Um, I kind of feel like the stuff Liz Truss was talking about doing and, and that the EU as a whole were trying to do about, you know, about um, helping, you know, power companies or, or um, energy companies in general deal with margin calls. Um, I think that was a, a right move. You know, some of this is just, you know, people driving prices and people were caught off massively off sides. Um, I mean, I remember there was coal company Peabody that people were talking about, you know, they're producing a giant amount of coal, but they sold coal fo price forward and, a friendly U.S. investment bank said, hey, guess what? We'll help you out. Pay us, you know, a couple hundred million dollars and we'll help you out. And even though knowing that they have that coal and they have that and they're selling that coal. So I, I think that the EU and and the U.K. did the right thing. I think the other question, um, and again, this is not my deep expertise, is that some of these rules and, and, and where power prices are uh, driven by, in, in saying something like NAC gas prices, and you know, people did not predict th these kind of moves, you know, get NAC gas prices in Europe going five times, but they kind of were there to also encourage and support kind of some of the lower lowest cost producers. And lowest cost producers, once infrastructure is built, kind of like things like solar and wind. And so it gave them some pricing power. So what I think Liz Trust is also talking about doing is saying, we're going to go in there and we're going to try and renegotiate some of these contracts um, and push them out much further where the pricing is much, much lower, uh, especially on power prices. And I think that's what crushed um, um, natural gas prices, but also power prices. And I think you, you were, I guess, I think I saw it was you on Twitter talking about it and everyone's like, oh, they, they're idiots, whatever, you know, like not, not everything European officials do are idiots, right? I actually think that that was pretty smart. And, you know, I, I, you know, I'm the ultimate capitalist, but there are times when governments should be there to support critical industries like this, especially when it can um deal with a short-term issue uh, that really could have driven, you know, more companies out of business like Uniper. So I, I kind of would support this stuff. The thing I'm not as crazy about, um, we have this debate within MacRive often, um, is this government, you know, 
giving a lot of money to keep um, energy prices very low for for, for homeowners um, and I guess businesses as well. Um, I absolutely think they should in the short term help, um, especially kind of smaller business, maybe more tailored, smaller businesses, maybe tailored to, to kind of um, lower income households. But at the end of the day, part of the cure for, for, for reducing energy demand and lower, lower prices is the fact of having reducing demand. And if this doesn't reduce demand at all, um, hey, we don't think we, we didn't learn a lot of lessons out of this thing. And I think it, that will keep prices higher. So I think in the medium term, a lot of the move, some of the moves that, that have been done, especially in these, you know, huge kind of um, payments to, to businesses and to households, probably is a is a is another kind of bullish let's call it bullet point for for NACAS and and oil. Andrew I, I I wanted to speak to the point on um on liquidity bailouts to to energy companies for a second because uh, I spent most of uh, last week talking to uh trading companies within the power space as well to try and understand what happened in in the German electricity market in particular and um, it seemed as if the spread between the electricity sold forward and the um, price of the input from natural gas and carbon emission certificates blew up completely to an extent where the liquidity dried up completely in the market uh, so at some point during that week it, it almost felt reminiscent of the LIBOR crisis in 2008 2009 as a consequence of counterparties not trusting each other due to liquidity issues so at that point the price was so far off fundamentals that it made sense for governments to step in so i agree with you that short-term solution was necessary even though i'm a non-interventionist in general that made sense um so perfectly agree on that point but uh, andrew let's move towards Uh, becoming more concrete on how to trade this um, backdrop of a lack of supply of energy. Um, I know you've been looking at some uh, trades in uh, in option space in oil. Sure, sure. Um, well, I can talk about the oil. Maybe one thing um, I'm just thinking about is um, that that's another risk to, to the market is, um, and obviously let's see how, how you know, what, what this policy looks like on trying to cap the price. But, you know, Putin came out pretty clear saying anyone who adheres to, to this cap is not going to get oil. Um, now, so that comes down to, to a couple points then is who is going to buy the oil from Russia? Now, I think the three of us can probably agree, China and India, but, you know, how much can they buy? Um, and do they just not buy anything from, from the Middle East or even the U.S.? Um, but one thing is, and we've seen this in natural gas, and obviously oil is very different for, for many reasons, Jack, that you brought up, which is, you know, the fungible, fungibility of it. Um, but if you're Putin and the G7 says, you know, we're going to pose this cap, China and India say, oh, great. Well, instead of paying $20 less, we're going to pay $30 less. And there was this weird thing at, at the summit between Xi and Putin where, you know, he made some comments about Ukraine and, you know, Putin doesn't, you know, everyone's like, oh, he's a master genius. Like, I'm sure he is, but like, and I'm sure, but a lot of it also seems to almost, in some cases, be driven by ego. Um, by the way, a lot of, you know, and I wonder if he comes out and threatens to say, 
Okay. Well, if you if you impose this cap and there's pressure on you know from people wanting discounts, maybe I'll maybe I'll stop um, exporting two million barrels a day. And I think with how tight the market is right now, and by the way, I don't think is if if I'm him and I'm threatening to do this, I'm going to do this at the first cold spell in November and December. Um, and I I would wait and I. Energy markets could absolutely freak out, and you know we could see something like the you know what what happened. I don't know how it would play out, but something like like we we saw in the in the power and and that gas markets. And by the way, oil is ginormous. You know that you know this is not an easy one for for governments to step in on. Um, so like, is there a chance oil could go to one hundred and fifty dollars, one hundred and seventy five dollars? I don't know, and. By the way, you know, in that case, Russia could be exporting two million barrels a day, and and they may make the same or more money, even with discounts that that people will still need. Um, so, and if he really wants to kind of um, or gets to a point that he sees the way to potentially win in his mind of winning is really to take down the U.S. European kind of global economies. Um, there is a scenario, and it's definitely not zero. Um, and then the other stuff is obviously the things that we discussed about um, uh, the supply, the tightness. I think one of the other things I heard is um, there, are, you know, ever in the inside on the energy market, if you if you saw like the the price of uh, diesel was collapsing, especially European diesel um, this week, and part of that apparently was because refineries, particularly in China, but also in India and, and places outside the U.S. and Europe, were kind of getting that wink, wink. Um, it's OK to buy some extra Russian oil, um, refine it into diesel and send it back to Europe. Um, so apparently that is one thing. And in the short term, that may be even more demand for 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 oil. And obviously um, for, for Europe, diesel is a, is a big driver. So, so my view, uh, or one way I think to play it is is to look at uh, options, and you know there is some backwardation, especially going into the winter. So for for oil, let, let's let's target this this summer. Uh, sorry, this winter. So for March 2023, 105 dollar calls on oil. Um, I think it's about three dollars and thirty cents. Um, that's about a 25 delta, and the vol is about 47 and a half. Um, I, I, my intention was just to be probably long vol in this case, but as, as the discussion we have, I also think it's probably interesting selling something like a 65 put against it. Um, for a lot of the reasons that we said, one is the SPR, uh, restocking, but a lot of that is just for all the lack of infra investment and in infrastructure and everything that even if we have a significant recession, you know, I think a lot of people are transposing what happened in 2008 to this. And this is a very different time, um, unfortunately, in, in some cases. Um, so I don't see oil collapsing, you know, and, and going down through $65. So I probably, and the skew is significantly bid for puts. And there's some reason energy insiders know there's one very big, energy um, producer who, who does a lot of risk reversals. So buy puts and sells calls. And that's why there's big skew in, in oil prices. But 
just in our in today's world, we're talking about energy being such like the linchpin of, of kind of like holding things together. How how can the skew be for puts versus calls? I mean, it seems does not make sense to me. You know, it, really, in, in 25 years of trading derivatives, I, I would say that uh, for for me, it that's a that's a shocker. Yeah, just a, a few things. So uh, backwardation is when current prices are more expensive than uh, forward prices. Um, what was it say? Yes, volatility is how expensive they are. Skew means puts are more expensive than calls. Risk reversals, yes. So, as you say, selling calls and buying puts. Andrew, what was it in 2008 that caused oil to explode higher, but then immediately crash and and have a very vicious crash? You know, I'm sure a lot of people tie that to the extreme slowdown in the economy. Um, what's different this time? You know, if the economy, the global economy is slowing and, you know, it is, at least the rate of growth is definitely going down. What's different? You know, what, why don't you see the risk of a 2008 style collapse in oil? Um, well, a couple of things. One, we've been higher for longer right now. And I think, you know, the market's already adjusting to that. Two, you have, I'll give a, you know, Andreas's point. You have governments actually intervening right now. To, to support the um, demand for energy. Uh, back in 2007, 2008, you didn't have the issues around the fact that um, companies did not have the funding to be able to, so basically to really increase energy, it usually somewhere like a four to five year lag to develop a field or offshore, or, you know, or build infrastructure. So, you had a lot of that stuff that was there or coming online in 2006, 2007, um, where in the last four or five years now, you just don't have that kind of investment. There's not like a huge amount of supply that can come on. Um, and if demand uh, collapses, I just think that that I don't see demand collapsing like like uh, like we had in 08. Now, I also think another factor is the fact that your point about natural gas is you have demand such higher levels of demand for electricity as well than you did have in, in 08. Um, and by the way, we're still talking about prices well, well below, forget about inflation adjusted levels that we had in 2008. So looking back, it probably was a bubble, a crazy bubble. And energy prices, oil at $85, um, that doesn't feel like a bubble to me. Um, and uh, Andrew, very well played. You used my exact count argument as a supportive argument for your trade. So, I mean, uh, well done. I mean, <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Uh, Andrew, finally here, um, if our yeah, audience sure. um, wants to find out. You more, sound like my wife, by the way. But if our audience. She's like, I don't want to argue with you. I'm like, okay, fine. Anyway. If, if our audience uh, wants to follow um, the thoughts from MacroHive, where do we find you guys? Sure, sure. Um, well, for the most professional investors, you guys, people just ping me on Bloomberg. Um, for, uh, for, for everybody else, um, yeah, you can reach out. My, my email is andrew.simon at macrohive.com. Um, Twitter, I'll definitely try and – I don't think I can be like, like you guys um, or MacroAlf. Um, you know, but I'll try and be more active on, on Twitter. But people, I think, I, I think I have my DM open on 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 there. But people can definitely ping me or 
comment on any stuff and um, probably feel free to correct anything I said. Um, and obviously people can go to the website, sign up. We have a Slack room, um, which is really active. So it's a community we built and people can, can join that. And that's usually pretty spirited. Um, yeah, hopefully that's, but, but I, I love when people reach out and, and, you know, have good productive discussions and stuff. And that's, I'm really happy that I met you guys as well. And Jack, your partner as well. Andrew, thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. What a great interview with uh, Andrew Simon from MacroHive. He's uh, clearly very bullish on energy in general, uh, but maybe in particular on um, on oil as a consequence of the uh, most recent message from the Biden administration um, hinting that they're intending to to pile up oil again below 80 in the crude oil price. Um, and um, there is a very easy way to replicate this long oil trade uh, if you're not interested in doing it via options, as Andrew suggested, and that would be via the USO, United States Oil Fund ETF. Um, and by the way, uh, as mentioned initially, we are sponsored by Saxo Bank in this podcast, uh, and Saxo Bank has a very decent offering also when it comes to uh, trading energy. Um, and, uh, and oil in particular, um, you can basically find uh, market coverage across fiat, metals, uh, energy, and everything you need in this regards uh, on the Saxo Bank trading platform. So you can learn more at goto.saxo slash macro FX. And we'll make sure to add the link to the Saxo Bank platform in the description below on YouTube and in your favorite podcast app. But uh, back to the discussion. Um, what do you make of, of Andrew's thesis here, uh, Jack? It's it's something that we've heard from from other macro pundits recently, this this long energy theme. Yeah, well, the peak oil bullishness was, was a few months ago, and it's been a, a rough time for people who are long actual like uh, oil futures, maybe less slightly less of a bad time for people who are long the companies, just because the their earnings potential is still huge with, with current prices. I, uh, I, so I really don't know. I know that you, people typically think of oil as very economically sensitive because it crashed in 2008 and it is, it is correlated to economic activity. But, uh, I, I suppose one thing we didn't explore as much as you know, we, we might have if we had more time with Andrew was what happens if there is a recession. Uh, you know, the supply story is great, sure, but if, you know, PMIs globally are at, 39 is that going to be bullish for the price of oil so i don't know i um i will say the risk reward for that trade i, I don't know if he said the specifics but uh, let me pull it up um as of when he he, he made the call uh, maybe perhaps a few days ago it was the march 2023 calls on wti uh, struck at 105 the delta is 25 uh, and it costs three dollars and 30 cents so basically you're breaking even if it goes to a dollar, a hundred and eight dollars and thirty cents, and then it's all upside after that, um, so it goes to one hundred and twenty. You're already looking at it, you know, a very convex payoff, and the volatility is forty-seven, which kind of sounds high, but I think the volatility might be underpriced. I mean, like just look at what happened in February and March and April and May and June. Like I, I think that. Uh, there definitely is some some upside potential. So it is out of the money, but you know, if oil goes to 150, that's I don't know what a 15 to one payoff. So there's I think there are definitely work worst uh, worst trades to to make. Um, I'd say I'm 
I I am I am interested in that 105 call option. Uh, selling the 65 put, I'll have to do more research. I don't know. What do What do you make of that, Andreas? I I think that's that's a tricky one. Um, I, I know we all read this uh, headline um, with uh, sort of the hint that the Biden administration uh, looked to to add to the uh, strategic reserves at levels below 80 in the crude oil price. But I mean, should we go to say 80 or thereabout, we will probably get a couple of rebounds uh, at just as a consequence of market psychology expecting the SPR uh, to, to step in to underpin the price. But what if we go below 80 and the bid from the SPR is not there? Then I would suppose we would get a free fall in the price for a couple of weeks, weeks at least, right? Because everyone's expecting uh, that big buyer to arrive. And if they suddenly decide not to, then I think you're sitting on a huge risk. So I, I would probably prefer not to sell optionality on, on the downside just as a consequence of, of I mean, who knows uh, whether the Biden administration are playing games with us uh, with this headline. I mean, we ultimately don't know, right, Jack? So I, I, I would probably <laughs> choose not to, to, to sell optionality on, on the downside just as a consequence of that. But speaking to your point on a recession in relation to the oil price, um, what happened in, in March 2020 and, and early April of 2020 was quite interesting in, in, in an oil perspective as well. I know this was a very extreme story given the lockdowns, but if you look at the oil demand during March and April 2020, I think it was down something like 6 or 7% globally. Um, so it wasn't that violent from a demand perspective, but that was more than enough to lead prices to negative levels um, in, in a short time span, right? So the oil price is sensitive to the demand side when we see just three, four, 5% of demand destruction. Uh, we're obviously not seeing the demand destruction at all in oil space yet. Um, if you look at the uh, daily usage of oil, it's, it's still at uh, record high levels or, 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 or at least within spitting distance of, of such levels, right? So we don't see the demand destruction yet, but if we get that three, four, 5% demand drop, then I'm fairly convinced still that the oil price will drop. Um, so as you may hear here, I'm, I'm leaning a bit short in this trade and I have uh, been leaning short since uh, midsummer, basically. Uh, so maybe when Andrew sells a $65 put, uh, maybe he's selling it to you. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I mean, uh, I haven't positioned myself in option space. I'm, uh, I'm long the SA LLGF, uh, so basically a reverse broad commodity basket, uh, including natural gas, including oil. Um, and one of the reasons why I took on that bet was that I saw more and more signs of politicians intervening against the high prices. Um, but I have to admit that the eye-opener today uh, from the interview with Andrew was the, that he basically flipped my argument, saying that, well, if politicians underpin demand via stimulus checks, uh, via bailouts, etc., then it's ultimately a positive demand story. And he's absolutely right. Um, so I, I'll need to consider my time horizon uh, on my short energy bet as a consequence of what he said today. I think he was spot on flipping my argument around. 
Right. Well, I think there are two sorts of government interventions, those that support energy prices, the ones that Andrew said, and then there are definitely government interventions that do not support energy prices, the most drastic one being a price cap. In other words, you know, if I buy a $105 uh, call option on WTI, you know, the Germany could say anyone who sells oil above $100 is going to jail. So basically anyone who uh, would make Jack money is going to jail. So I'm guaranteed to lose money. So uh, there's definitely, <laughs> definitely a range of, uh, of outcomes. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I mean, ultimately, the question right now in energy space is whether you want to be long or short politicians in general, I think. Um, and I mean, historically, I would probably have said that um, I want to be short politicians when it comes to this energy policy question. But I think right now they're really forcefully trying um, yeah, to put people to jail who are trying to bet against them, if you know what I mean. We're, we're of course, talking in pictures now, but, uh, I mean, they are very forcefully acting against people trying to be long energy, uh, at least in, mm -hmm. in sort of the physical energy space. Uh, so I'm, I'm much more convinced of the long energy story in stock space, and therefore I wanted to ask you, Jack, about um, whether there are any single names that are interesting in natural gas oil space uh, that you've been following lately. A few. Uh I will start with the caveat that I obviously don't know what I'm doing and, you know, I am what I appear, which is some, some, just, I'm a kid, you know? So if you, if you listen to what I do and you lose money because you listen to me, like it's because you listen to a kid. So with that caveat uh, out of the way, uh, yeah, sort of the obvious pick, which perhaps some folks have heard of is a uh, Chenier LNG. They, uh, uh, have liquefaction plants, so they turn uh, natural gas into liquefied natural gas, which can then be shipped uh, from the U.S. to Europe, to Japan, to to all around the world. And the price differentials there are very attractive. Where you know natural gas roughly in the U.S. is like nine bucks, and it is you know sixty bucks equivalent in Europe. So it's it's a pretty good trade. Uh, Selling it, buying it at nine bucks and selling it at, at a, a, a 60, of course, uh, they they sell it at a fraction of that because then uh, there's regasification. So, uh, so there's, that, there's Chenier and then Chenier has some ships that it does some some uh, natural gas, uh, some LNG tanker ships. And there's a company called FLNG that that's that, that that's actually the ticker and they lease nat uh, LNG tankers to Chenier and Shell and other companies like that. So that is a company that. Uh, is perhaps what, slightly less known uh, that I've been looking at. And then, so those two picks, I think are, you know, nothing's guaranteed, nothing's safe in this business, but they are less speculative than my final pick, uh, which is a company called Antero Resources. I believe the ticker is AR. And that company is a natural gas producer. Unlike other natural gas producers or many other natural gas producers, it does not it historically has not been a big hedger. Uh, so it did hedge some of the exposure in 2022. But as of its most recent filing, I think a lot of its uh, exposure to 2023 prices, uh, it has not hedged. So if natural gas prices stay at $9 or even go up, uh, this company will make a lot of money because it produces it at roughly about $3 uh, and it's selling it at 9 
So I actually would not want to own this stock, but I would be perhaps interested in some call options on it uh, because definitely could go down. It definitely could crash. But if it goes up, I think you will have some uh, perhaps explosive potential. Um, so those are some stocks that I've been looking at. And uh, Andreas, I also want to own up because my uh, track record on the macro trading floor for uh, sort of making calls and individual stocks has been absolutely abysmal because I've, I've only been out here at one time, but I talked about a SPAC that was called... Um, uh, BRPM, I think. Um, and it actually, it's now changed its ticker to phase, uh, F A Z E. And at the time when I made that prediction, I was kind of riding high because I had encountered a lot of SPACs that had despacked, and, you know, they were at $10 on Monday and by Friday they'd gone to $3. So I was very com- I was overconfident in shorting them. Uh, so this phase, uh, it, it despacked. And I, I was shorted and it, it's sort of, uh, it's been, it's been very tough, uh, because it went from 10 to 15 and then back to 12 and it's been really annoying. Uh, so, you know, I just, you know, I feel like it's important to own up to your, to your mistakes. Um, and I, it, it's, I feel like there are two reasons why it didn't work. Uh, one was the squeeze dynamics were, um, you know, roughly like 80 million shares, but only like 1 million of them were floating and actually like in public avail. So it was extremely volatile, particularly to the upside. And then the second reason I would attribute just to the macro environments, like uh, high beta assets did extraordinarily poorly from January to May, really June of this year. Um, and I sort of, by being short a ton of those high beta assets, I was, did very well and I was very overconfident. Uh, but that macro environment did not during the summer, it kind of was like a summer of love, you know, where like everything was just going up and being short those assets was, was very, uh, very tough, particularly when you're paying a, a high borrow cost. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, want to, you know, I feel like it's, I, I prefer to uh, share my, my losses than my, than my victories. Cause I feel like if you share your victories, you're, uh, you know, kind of bragging. <laughs> And you know, you know, Jack. Uh, as an economist, I love base effects. And if you have a zero percent hit ratio on the macro trading floor, it can only get better from here. That's True. And I gave certainty. three names. I gave three names. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good stuff, Jack. It was uh, such a pleasure to have you as my uh, co-host this week. Thanks for for stepping in. Uh, my pleasure. And for folks who's like, who's this kid? Do not worry. The man himself, Alfonso Pecatiello, he will be back next week. Yeah. And I know you will do your forward guidance show uh, each and every week still at the BlockWorks channels as well. So uh, please check that out if you haven't uh, seen the forward guidance show already. Uh, my name is uh, Andreas Steno, and I want to remind you that you can find Saxo Bank's link in the description just uh, below here on YouTube or in your favorite pod- podcast app. I will be back next Sunday with Alfonso Picacello again. So see you there, guys. Mm-hmm.